0: tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, we're breaking in mid-conversation, aren't we? And we looked at the first half of this conversation, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. We looked at the first half of this conversation last week. Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people, perhaps several hundred. The crowd would have obviously included his disciples, uh, themselves uh, numbering perhaps around a hundred individuals or so. And obviously the crowd includes Pharisees and teachers of the law, the conservative, Bible-believing, religious experts of the day, the rabbis. And with respect to Jewish society, These guys were the establishment. They were insiders with a capital I. They formed and controlled the culture of the nation by teaching the populace both the sacred scriptures as well as the hundreds and hundreds of customs, rules, traditions, and laws, the so-called oral law, the traditions of the fathers. But coming into this crowd were also tax collectors and sinners. And as we... Heard last week, the word sinner in the first century meant someone who was either unwilling or unable to obey the law of Moses, as well as, of course, the highly elaborate Jewish customs, rules, and traditions that had sprung up all around it. And such people certainly would have included tax collectors, who, in their collaboration with the Romans for the sake of financial gain, had obviously severed all connection with the God of Israel. But it also would have included prostitutes and shepherds people who broke the law of Moses such as for example for shepherds by routinely working on the sabbath well <clears throat> now everybody sins i mean we all sin every everybody knows that and the pharisees and the teachers of the law they would have been the first to agree with that but the question is what do you do when you sin and according to the pharisees and the teachers of the law you needed three things firstly You needed to repent, which means to turn back to God. Turn to God and he will turn to you. Repentance. Secondly, you need to renounce your sin. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Get your evil deeds out of my sight, to quote Isaiah. You need to renounce your sin. Thirdly, you need reparation. Reparation. Repay what you owe. Uh, You make atonement by paying back. Perhaps if you stole from someone, you would add a fifth of the value. You make reparations, and then you make the prescribed sacrifice to God in the temple. Now, what what we need to see in order to really fully understand this scenario in this scene is that these sinners, for these sinners, step three is impossible. The law of Moses held out nothing for adulterers and Sabbath breakers. Reparation was impossible. Impossible. And now we can see that this group that Luke calls tax collectors and sinners, they're not just outsiders. Sure, we need to get that they're outsiders, but they're more than outsiders. They are outsiders for whom there is no way back in. Outsiders forever with a capital O. But Jesus is welcoming them, literally receiving them, acting as host as though at a dinner party, pleased to eat with them. And of course, in this culture, to, to eat together is to belong together. He's treating them as insiders. He's, he's forming association, ongoing association of belongingness, community, friendship. He belongs to them and they to him because they're eating together. And this treating of outsiders as though they were inside is not, is not just a theological impossibility as far as the Pharisees and tax collectors are concerned. It proves conclusively that this guy is not the Messiah who comes to punish the wicked and to deliver the righteous. Well, in response, Jesus initially offers two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, parables we looked at last week. And Jesus's meaning wasn't obscure. He told us what the point was. I tell you, says Jesus, every time someone turns back to God, there is celebration and happiness amongst the angels of God and in the presence of God. Indeed, there's so much joy and happiness and celebration that the joy of one person turning back to God is greater than the joy created by 99 people who are already God's friend. And Last week, we saw how astonishingly this is only a fitting explanation of the phenomenon that's unfolding before them if we accept Jesus' assumption that must be that to eat with Jesus is actually to be friends with God. Otherwise, the parables don't fit. What we see is that as far as Jesus is concerned is to have lunch with Him is to have lunch with God. To be received by Him is to be received by God. To know Him is to know God. And to be his friend is to belong to God. Otherwise, the parables make no sense in the face of the accusation. That's what Jesus is assuming. To have lunch with Jesus is to have lunch with God. And as though that wasn't enough to think about, he continues. Verse 11, Jesus continued, "'There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, "'Father, give me my share of the estate.'" So he divided his property between them. And uh, what follows has traditionally been called the parable of the prodigal son, meaning the parable of the wastefully extravagant son. I think that title probably puts the focus on the wrong thing. Um, the parable has also been called the parable of the gracious father. That That's good. Um, the Pew Bible that we read from, or we would have read from if it wasn't for the pictures, the Pew Bible, the NIV translation, calls it the parable of... Of the lost son, but for me, following others like uh, Kenneth Bailey, I, I think a better title is <clears throat> the parable. Excuse me, <clears throat> the parable of the two lost sons. Uh, Bailey points out that the parable is really two short stories. It's two parables. The second one, building on the assumed background knowledge of the first one, two parables then about two lost things—a sheep and a goat—and then two parables about two lost sons not a sheep and a goat, a sheep and a coin. And then the parable about two lost sons. Well, we're introduced to a father who has two sons and immediately and briefly we're exposed to something so shocking as to be almost unbelievable. The younger son has asked to receive his inheritance before his father's death. And as is frequently observed, this is our most astonishing insult. The son is saying to his father, in effect, Hey, hey, Daddy, I love what you can give me. I want the blessings, but actually, I don't want you. Don't take this personally, old man, but actually, I wish you were already dead. Could we pretend that you are? And astonishingly, the father, rather than beating him senseless and ranting about ingratitude and lack of respect in the fifth commandment, which is exactly what would have been culturally expected of him, he does it. He divides his property between the two sons. And this action, we need to understand this clearly. To Christ's original audience, this scenario being presented is both unimagined and unimaginable. The request from the youngest son is too insulting to be credible. It's unimaginable. And the response of the father is is ludicrously irresponsible, and unimaginably gracious and loving. It's just unimagined and unimaginable. But Christ is asking us to imagine the unimaginable, and he's taking us along for the ride. Um, what would the division have looked like, just in case you're wondering? Well, the rights of the, of, of the firstborn was that he gets a double portion, so what the dad would have done is he would have divided his entire state into three, the younger son gets one lot, the older son gets two lots. As the story becomes clear, he makes over to his sons both disposition—sorry, both um, possession and disposition. They not only possess it, they have the right to sell it. He does this without any, th- any thought or concern as to his own welfare, an astonishing risk. As for the older son, um, we notice that his silence at this point of the parable is deafening. Well, we'll come back to him. And then briefly, we continue in two sentences, verses 13 and 14, we hear of the younger son's response. He liquidates his assets, he flees the country, he squanders his wealth in wild living. Fleeing the country was probably by necessity. This young man has dishonored his father, he's dishonored his family home in every conceivable way, and in an honor-shame culture, he's dishonored his village as well. If he was to stay near to home, probably someone would kill him. Squandering the wealth in wild living comes as no surprise, but we should note two things about it. Firstly, Jesus doesn't labor the point, there are no gory details, and that's because what he did is none of our business. Secondly, whatever his lifestyle did look like, we can take it as read that it was the antithesis of the example that his father had set for him. The, the, the point of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother so that you may live in the land a long time, is to acknowledge the God-given authority that parents have with a preparedness to both copy and obey so that as parents copy God and follow Jesus, uh, children will turn out to be faithful copies of their parents. This young man's behavior is a judgment, therefore, upon his father. He's saying, in effect... My old man has no idea how to live. I'm going to show the world how to do it properly. None of this is particularly surprising. None of this is particularly unusual. But of course, it doesn't last long. The money runs out at precisely the start of an economic downturn. There's a famine. It's part of the rhythm of life in Judea. The rains fail. Food Shortages everywhere, prices go sky high, gets worse and worse until the rains return. And what he did was this. Literally speaking, literally speaking, he glued himself to a polites. He glued himself to a man of the city, a wealthy person. This wealthy landowner is clearly not Jewish. So this action of coming in under the umbrella of his of, of his roof, taking shelter in his household, with all of its religious implications. This, this young guy, he, this is the final abandonment of uh, the God of Israel. Uh, he severed ties with the God of Israel forever. And the young man asks for a place in the man's household, something that the wealthy man, by way of social convention, could not refuse. But um, this former rich kid, who's obviously lived wildly, he would have been an embarrassment to any honourable household, whether Jewish or Gentile, and the way that you got rid of freeloaders and hangers-on was that you gave them a task that you knew they just couldn't possibly accept. And it was no secret in the ancient world that Jews considered pigs an unclean animal. So he's been given a task he couldn't possibly accept, and he accepts it. He hasn't taken the hint, has he? Uh, He is being intentionally humiliated and excluded in every possible way. His position is untenable. No one is willing to help him. This is total isolation and destruction. Uh, Welcome to hell. An analogy within an analogy, which I think is kind of neat, but then again. Well, just so you haven't missed it, this young man is a sinner. In the first century uh, sense of the word, he is a person who couldn't, who didn't, wasn't willing to, and finally couldn't keep the law of Moses. He has abandoned the God of Israel, and the law of Moses offers no way back in for a person of this type. This, This ought to be the end of the story. But um, as so often happens in biblical dramas and in real life, um, not that real life and biblical, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, As so often happens, the proximity of death causes people to think very clearly. And he does. Verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Um, The phrase, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, is literally true in at least two ways. Firstly, he's asked for his share of the inheritance And he sold it. And in doing so, he has formally severed all ties with his father. There's no coming back from that. He's disowned his dad. Secondly, in the Bible, the word son carries enormous weight in terms of image and and identity. The son copies the father and shows the world what the father is like. The name Barnabas, as, as we all know, the name Barnabas is a nickname. It means son of encouragement. In other words, this person who we have nicknamed son of encouragement is the very image of, the very model of, the very essence of encouragement. If you want to know what encouragement looks like, go to this guy. But this younger son has not copied his father. He has rejected the life modeled to him by his dad, and he's pursued the opposite. Yes, he's right. He's no longer worthy to be called his son. He is worthy, indeed, to be called the anti-son. But he's not asking for grace and forgiveness. The, the phrase, make me like one of your hired, man, hired hands, is a solution that will preserve, possibly preserve the honor of both parties. They'll save face, and the youth will survive. And the youth figures that he can actually compensate his father for the money he's lost and, in fact, working as a hired hand over many years, he probably could have compensated his father. So this second phrase shows us that this young man is seeking to make reparation, presumably adding a fifth of the value to it as a sacrifice that will atone for what he's done. The relationship's dead, but he can make reparation. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That the, the father sees him while he is still a long way off. Why? Why did he see him when he was still a long way off? Well, if the original scenario was unimagined and unimaginable, so too now this turn of events. For, for a start, landowners do not run. Men do not run. Not in their flowing robes. Servants run. Slaves run. If there's running to be done, send a slave. It's a humiliation for a man to run. But this father has been keeping a personal lookout. He knew that if his son returned, he would need to take swift action. Because as the boy walked through the village, a mob would form. A mob would form to mock him and probably to beat him. In their un- honor-shame culture, this would be essential for the humiliation that the boy, the dishonor that the boy has caused them. But in, and the boy would be expecting this. But instead of the humiliation the son expects, the father publicly humiliates himself, publicly running. Probably through the village, to the edge of the village. A public show of reconciliation, throwing his arms around his son and kissing him. Very costly for the father to do this. A public humiliation in place of his son's humiliation. He takes the humiliation upon himself. And the son starts his speech. It's a confession. It's repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father speaks to his servants who have come with him, and he hastily arranges for five public and costly demonstrations that he is his son, fully belongs to him, fully his son, and therefore also fully restored to the community. The best robe, it's undoubtedly his father's robe, reserved for formal occasions. The signet ring is the ancient version of the credit card this guy's got power um sandals represent authority authority to walk the land and not be unsandaled like a servant and the fattened calf is slaughtered not a lamb or a goat not not a kid goat a fattened calf feeds more than a hundred people and you've got to eat it with a few hours otherwise it's going to go off what does this father intend to do he intends to host a banquet and invite the entire village the entire community And as with the previous two parables, this rejoicing searcher who has found what he was looking for, and in his happiness, he joyfully shoulders the burden, the cost of restoration. This searcher invites the whole community expecting that they will celebrate with him the return of this person who was lost, not just to him, but also to them. And as with the two parables that we looked at last week, the searcher, And the father was a searcher, the searcher joyfully shoulders the burden of restoration. Because the joy of restoration is so very, very great. This son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. Um, We notice along the way that he didn't get time to get his phrase out make me like one of your hired men. Um, Was he interrupted? Well, there's no reason to imagine that he was interrupted. He expected to have to pay for his sins to make reparation. And in fact, he could have insisted on it, could have come anywhere in the speech. But in in the light of what his father has just done, in the light of this experience of amazing grace, seeing seeing your father come publicly humiliating himself, your humiliation actually transferred to him because of what he's done. In the light of such astonishing grace, he just knows it's useless. Uh, He can't make reparation. that, that, that he killed the relationship. There was nothing he could have done. There was no payment sufficient. And yet his father has taken the payment and reinstated the relationship. Costly as though it was, both in terms of humiliation and in terms of expense. And he knows it would be both insulting and stupid to suggest that he could in any way save the relationship himself, make reparation. He's abandoned it. And the parable could end here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law now have a full and comprehensive answer to their objection. And as with the other two parables, the parable is an analogy that invites comparison. How is Jesus having lunch with outsiders just like this father and his younger son? Jesus is the one who searches out for the lost, those who are formerly dead to God. He he himself joyfully shoulders the burden of restoration in the knowledge that God's community is celebrating. Celebrating when people become friends with God. And all of that makes sense if and only if we accept Christ's premise that to have lunch with Jesus of Nazareth and be his friend is to have lunch with God and be his friend. parable could end there but it doesn't rather the story continues the parable of the other lost son the one who refuses to join in the celebration and the fact that he refuses to join in the party means as far as the community is concerned his relationship with his father has now been severed it's in jeopardy he's disowning his dad and disowning them this dad is having a bad day isn't he one son lost one son found the other lost unless something can be done And once again, the father goes out to search. And once again, this is a humiliation. Fathers don't go outside in front of all of their guests to seek an audience with a disobedient son. Enormously shaming. Enormously humiliating. Disobedient sons are dragged in in front of the guests in order that they can be humiliated and told off and beaten. But again, the father humiliates himself publicly. And what's the son's complaint? Verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now there's one assumption that makes sense of this argument. We can see the older son's assumption. His assumption is that his dad runs the household according to performance based acceptance. If you perform, you're in, if you don't perform, you're out. That's, that's what the son thinks that is how the son thinks his dad runs his household. And so he interprets the dinner party as a perverse reward offered to a rebellious and wicked son a person he refers to as your son, rather than my brother. And we notice, um, you know, in this mood, he's quick to judge his brother, isn't he? And now he supplies the gory details. Christ didn't, but he does. And by including the gory details, he makes that accusation. The older brother, by filling in the blanks for us, thanks so much, older brother, um, by filling in the blanks, he moves, he ups his claim and says, actually, this younger, this younger boy, is an outsider who can never be included again. What he's done is so bad, he is a permanent outsider. There's no way back in for this person who used to be my brother. Furthermore, having assumed performance-based acceptance, the older son feels that he should have been rewarded. Not only does he feel unrewarded, but rather he feels denied. Denied even a kid, a baby goat that he could celebrate with his friends. He claims an unblemished service record, even though he's just publicly humiliated and insulted his father. He claims an unblemished service record and he sees himself as a slave and his father as a slave master. Not only as a slave master, but he sees his father as someone who rewards the wicked, punishes the good, does things out of favoritism. In short, this guy accuses his father of being an evil, evil man. And he sees the feast not as an expression of a, sorry, he sees the feast as an expression of approval for the bad behavior. He doesn't see it for what it actually is, which is simply an expression of the father's joy in having the younger son back. And because he thinks his father runs his house according to performance-based acceptance, he not only sees his father as an evil man, but he sees himself as righteous even though he's insulted his father, every bit as severely as his younger son, as his younger brother, did all those months ago when he asked for his share of the inheritance. He sees himself as righteous. But the truth is that it's the other way around. The older son is an evil, evil man. Bitter, judgmental, discontent, and extremely insecure. That's what happens when you create a performance-based acceptance culture. You get people like this. But the solution needed in order to clarify the entire entire thing is to see that actually the father's not remotely interested in performance. He, he's interested in relationship. That The house rule isn't performance-based acceptance. You do what's right and you'll get accepted. You do what's good, you'll get rewarded. No, rather, the house rule is grace. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Costly grace. Father's prepared to pick up the tab. Loving grace. And loving grace will continue to be extended now to him as well. My son, we're expecting a furious father, but once again, this outpouring of love. My son, in the face of rejection, there is a continuing use of title which offers unconditional acceptance. My son, you are always with me. This is the father's priority. Not that the work gets done, but that there is relationship, conversation sharing of the heart. The father delights in the presence of his two sons. That's what the father thought was going on, and he hoped that they might delight in his presence too. He continues, and everything I have is yours, which is, of course, literally true. Right at the start, the father made everything over to his sons, the right of possession and the right of dispossession. It's his. The oldest son's silence was deafening. Why didn't he say anything? Well, because he knew that The remaining two-thirds would be his and his alone. This older boy is no different to his younger brother. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beautifully, amazingly, wonderfully, the parable simply stops. What what, what did the older son do? We don't know. The story leaves him on the outside. The story leaves him an outsider, but with the heartfelt plea of the father that he too might simply, simply walk into that which has been provided and become an insider. The, the, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, at the start of the story, they assume that they're the insiders. And they see the outsiders as people who can never be welcomed back in. That's it. At the end of the story, Jesus has shown them that the the outsiders are becoming insiders and that they actually are on the outside. And the question of the text is, will they become insiders? How do you become an insider? Actually, it's simple. Have lunch with Jesus.